I'd like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 this morning. It's a, it's a bit of a serious passage. It's one that will make you swallow, you know, when we're done reading it. Maybe a bit of a gulp. We're going to begin, though, to hopefully give us a bit of perspective on this passage in Acts chapter 5. We're going to begin by looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, as we see that these are actually part of a whole together. So let's actually begin reading this morning Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and following. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Was it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, the wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Lord, I pray that you would sober us by this word, that we would not discount the the severity of, of your holiness and the severity of your Spirit's presence among us, that this is not just so in this moment recorded in Scripture. This is so now. Your Spirit is among your people, and your Word speaks with authority, and you are still worthy. Lord, I pray that you would humble us by these things, and Lord, that we would search your Scriptures for transformation and hope. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, the reason I went back to the verses that come before chapter 5 is they are part of a whole of a story, a story that was preached last uh, week or two weeks ago where they had everything in common in verse 32. And then you have this sharing of a particular example, the particular example of Joseph, who is also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, even the fact that we're told that his name means son of encouragement 
we're being told that there is something to be encouraged by in the middle of this, that there's something to be encouraged by in the middle of what he is doing, even as Luke, the author of Acts, gives us this story placed right up next to such a sobering story. Is there any encouragement for the church of God this morning in the midst of the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Now, looking at verses 36 and 37, I think that what we see is the first implication of the gospel. One of the first implications of the reality of the risen Christ, and it's realized by the early church, is that possessions of the world are subordinate to the fellowship of the saints and the mission of the church. Say it again. The possessions of this world are subordinate, are less than, are viewed functionally and practically as not as valuable as what we have in the gift of the fellowship of the saints and the mission of the church. We celebrate this reality every Sunday morning in the way that we go about the telling of the story at Cross Point Coast in our celebration services. Directly after we remember Christ and His broken body, and His shed blood in communion, just after we remember that He who was crucified and risen is returning for His people, we collect an offering. The offering box is directly after the communion plate. And we do this because we believe that it's out of a heart of gratitude and hope that we overflow in generosity and joy. We don't believe that we have to hold your hand between those two immediate proximities, that we don't have to force something to happen between communion and offering. We believe that for those who have actually received Christ, there is joy and generosity that rises up in the fellowship, and in the mission. We share together in Christ. And so, we share together in provision in this world. Those are immediate implications that we see being played out in this church. We share together in mission and a fellowship. And so we leverage what we have in this world for the sake of the fellowship and the mission that we share together. You see, the resurrection of Jesus radically reorients our understanding of the world. You see, before Jesus, the world is all that we had. But now we no longer need to strive and fit to obtain and to hoard the things that we have in this world. Because Jesus has revealed a hope and a promise that supersedes, that rises above and subordinates every simple comfort and prosperity. Everything else is lesser than what we have in Jesus. Let me put it as clearly as I can. The death and resurrection of Jesus reveals that you can reject me. You can crucify me. You can strip me bare and mock me. But my life is hidden in Jesus, that crucified Savior who is mocked and rejected and stripped bare. And I have hope in His resurrection. And all of the inheritance that is for Him is mine in Christ. That is what the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus has for the people of faith. Is that you this morning? Is that your hope? 
Is that your functional joy? Is that your inheritance? Are all other things subordinated to what you have in Christ? Well, let's get to the sobering part, if that's not sobering enough already. (laughs) Ananias, verse 1. Ananias, it says, with his wife Sapphira, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, the first thing that we see is that they did this together. They were in agreement together. There was a colluding that took place in this household to to go about this pretending and performing that we'll see together. They deliberately kept back a portion. Later, during Sapphira's testimony regarding the sale and offering of the property, it becomes explicitly clear that they intended not only to keep a portion back, but to pretend as though they were bringing the whole. You see that? The problem is not that they kept something back. It's that they hid something back. There was more than a simple division of the funds and an offering of a portion. There was a self-righteous pretending that was taking place, and they thought it was just happening in front of Peter. But the Lord was present, and the Spirit was lied to. In verse 2, we're told that they kept some back. They brought only a part. So what they did is they went through all the observable motions of generosity. And you would think that that we would be smarter than that, to know that, that generosity is more than the observable motions of generosity. They they sold the property, right? They gave the gift. They're generous people. But it will soon be revealed that their show of generosity was without any heart transformation. And that heart transformation can only be seen by examining the inner life. And their inner life is laid bare before the apostles and before us by Luke this morning. Now, I wonder if you're like me, that when you read this scripture, perhaps you've read it before, or this morning was your first time, that if you you squirm a little... Are you a little uncomfortable with this passage? You even wonder a little bit like, like, is that really supposed to be in there? It can't possibly mean what it seems to mean, right? I mean, they're, you got two dead people and all they did is just not give everything, <laughs> you know? Is it possible that perhaps part of the reason why we squirm a bit in this story is not because of the shocking death of Ananias and Sapphira? Maybe it's because we identify with their pretension. It's just not just that they're dead at the end of the story. It's that we see ourselves in the way that they have walked among the church. Just a couple questions. Do you have a regular practice of holding on to things that you have let others believe you've let go of? Do you know the regular practice of hiding sins that you have let others believe you don't have a problem with? As I've spent 41 years in the church, one way or another and in many, many places. I've never been in a place where that isn't almost like a definition of what we're used to. A regular practice. It's almost a religious practice of the church 
to pretend and perform. And let, let me be honest, I've never been a part of a church where that was not often my regular practice. It is for that reason that this church never won't have a prayer of confession in our gathering and in our scattering. Because this pastor and this people have much to confess. That our inner life would be revealed before the Lord at least, and Lord, work in me that I don't have to be afraid of the people around me. And in that way, we learn how to not squirm together, but rejoice. We can sing louder because we don't squirm under what we're hiding, but because we get to rejoice together in what has been forgiven and in the ways that He is actually working to change us. For how many of us is this passage not so much a passage about severe punishment, it's more a passage about shame. You read it and you're filled with shame. I truly hope this morning that the Scripture will help to lift that shame, that it would lift both your hiding and the shame that comes with it. Friends, shame has nothing to do with the life of the one who is walking hidden in Christ. Shame is cast out by the light of the Lord and the glory of His gospel. I I hope that what happens this morning is you'll see the folly of pretending and performing. Jesus has already laid our sins bare. He said, these people that are gathered as my church are so wicked, it will demand the bloody and public execution of God the Son to atone for them. That means that none of your sin is shocking. What's shocking is the cross. And He's laid bare the reality of the shame of our sin. And He's borne that shame for us. I hope that what is given to you rather than shame is faith. A hope that endures far beyond anything our pretending, our self-righteous performances can obtain for us. Let's continue looking at the passage. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Let me just pause for a second and note the active work of Satan in this passage. That we really do have an enemy an enemy of our souls, an enemy of the church that would seek to destroy us in our hypocrisy. The first thing that he goes at at isn't first bad theology, but rather shame and hypocrisy, which is itself bad theology. Look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your Disposable, disposal. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Did it not remain your own? Was it not at your disposal? Those are poignant questions. There are two things I think that we can receive by a reflection on them. The first is that the things of this world that the Lord has provided to His church are actually ours. That what He has provided, particularly for each of His people and each of His households, they're yours. Are they not 
yours? Are they not at your disposal? When we say, it's not mine, it's the Lord's. And we may be getting in an important reality that what the Lord has provided, what the Lord has given, He has given for the purpose of displaying His glory for the joy of His church. And yet, what the Lord has provided and belongs to His purposes are no less actually ours. What the Lord has given to me is mine. Thank you, Jesus. Right? And yet... It's not ours alone for its purposes, for its ends. And so we remain responsible for the means of their disposal, for the use of the things that He has provided. Secondly, the things of this world that the Lord has provided are under our direction and control. It says it in the passage, was it not at your disposal? This is so important. There is no coercion in the church. Not according to the way that the Lord presents His church. Not according to the way that the Scriptures describe generosity. It is not a generosity that is coerced. The church does not tax its members. The church has no right to claim control of the possessions of the things that the Lord has given, particularly to each of its members. We don't have the right to claim control or possession. The members of the church are to be intentional as to the use, as to the disposal of their worldly possessions. We're to establish purposes for their use in our households and in our hearts. And then we're to be honest and unashamed of their youth. Now, of their use. Honest and unashamed. I originally put the word open. And I realized what I really meant was the word honest. That we're not supposed to use them openly out here, but we're not to hide and to pretend that they are being used in a way that they are not. We're to have integrity with the use and the disposal of the things that God has given to us. We're to be under no, offer no pretense that we are of greater generosity than what we have actually purposed in our hearts. Because the things of the world that the Lord has provided actually belong to the use and purpose and direction of His people, that means that the members are responsible for what the Lord has provided. Each one of us responsible for the disposal of what God has given to us for the purposes of what He has given. And what Ananias and Sapphira do is they leverage, they're leveraging, we always do. We're always worshiping. We're always using. We're always leveraging what we have for something. And here they are leveraging what they have for their own glory. Do you see it? Not only in that they kept something back, but that they pretended like they'd given the whole to lift themselves up, to hold themselves up with pride, self-righteousness. We see that in the second half of verse 4. It says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? I want you to notice where the sin takes place. 
The sin does not take place when they bring the offering into the tent. The the sin does not take place just when they said what they said in the presence of the apostles and in the presence, more importantly, of the Holy Spirit. The sin takes place when they contrived this deed in their heart. That is the location of our brokenness. You could ask it this way. What is the wickedness of Ananias and Sapphira? Is, is, is what they did here really that bad? I mean, a death sentence? Really? Just for keeping a little portion back? Peter, Peter recognizes that what's wrong with Ananias and Sapphira is not merely their deed. It's the wickedness of their heart. It's really a heart of unbelief. I think it's going to become very clear to us this morning. Think of two examples in the Scriptures. Two examples that really are both very severe and they're very similar. Think of the rich young ruler. Some of you may know that story. He comes to Jesus and he he offers himself up as something of a disciple. Jesus asks him, well, have you kept the whole law and stuff? And he says, oh yeah, I've kept the, the whole law. And he said, well, here's the deal. There's one thing that you lack. Why don't you, you know, take everything that you have as a rich young ruler. Why don't you take everything that you have, sell it and give it to the poor? Now, it's interesting because that's not actually given as a command that that guy was supposed to keep. And yet, he walks away sad, and he is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. He walks away and condemned under his sin and unbelief. Why is that so? Jesus wasn't telling the young man that he had a problem, a money problem. He wasn't telling the young man that he had a social justice problem. Who knows? Maybe he was very generous with the portion that he had. But what Jesus identified is that this man had a heart problem that would become an inability to follow after Jesus. The things of this world had subordinated Jesus to them. The young man, much like Ananias and Sapphira, trusted in worldly wealth rather than Jesus. And we know that because he walked away from Jesus. Do you see it? When we cling to worldly wealth, we're walking away from Jesus. Again, it's not a money problem. It's a heart problem. It's a trust, a faith issue. There's another severe passage in the Scriptures. And make no mistake, that's severe. He didn't drop dead, but he walked away from life. It's the same thing. There's another story. The sin of Achan. Some of you may recall that in the Old Testament. Much of today's passage in the early, early establishment of the church is very similar to what is taking place in the story of Achan, in the early establishment of Israel in the land of Canaan. After the fall of Jericho, the, the people of God went in and they destroyed the city and they were told to leave everything devoted to the Lord, to take nothing for themselves and for their personal households, right? They were to take no, no possession. Yet a man named Achan, once he was found out, evaluated, he came to this confession. When I, that is Achan, saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath Friends, Achan's right. He coveted them. 
He was right not to say, I took him. You're right, I took him. What was busted about Achan was his heart. He coveted them. This is an issue, a matter of the heart's trust. And listen, that is every one of our heart's natural disposition, a natural disposition of covetousness, of lust for the things of this world, and a fear of man in our pride. We covet the things of this world even while we posture and position ourselves as a people of generosity. We we say, let me just use this portion to show the world just how generous my heart is. Self-righteousness. It takes little effort for our hearts to pretend before the eyes of man and perform before the eyes of God. I want to identify just a couple things sort of broadly about this passage. I want to do so by considering four problems with Ananias. We can pick on Ananias. We can pick on Sapphira. We can pick on me. We can pick on you. These are four problems with the natural disposition of our hearts. The first, I'll just list the four of them quickly. First of all, he's a legalist. He's also a hypocrite. He's a lover of money, and worst of all, he's a functional atheist. Let me show you what this means. He's a legalist. A legalist always looks at religion as a matter of transaction. I do something, and something happens. You know who has the power in the, the, the worldview of the legalist? Do you know who has, so, who has sovereignty? Do you know his glorious in the worldview of the legalist? It's the legalist. He thinks that if he does something, he can make something happen. He's sovereign over his own soul. You bring an offering, you gain a place and a standing. The church is a simple exchange of goods and services. I bring my body, I bring my family, I bring my money. And I get something out of this. The legalist is related to the consumer mindset in the church. You come, you pay your dues, and then the leaders of church offer you some sort of religious service in return. A service that is due you, or else you'll take yourself and your money somewhere else. The legalist and the consumerist, they're almost one and the same. But the fact is the church is not pay to play. And the church is not pay to win. It's infinitely true that our redemption came at a price. There is a payment that has to be made for our redemption. And it is a glorious exchange. But every amount you and I tried to add to the price that was paid by the Savior on the cross cheapens grace. We sing songs like Amazing Grace, right? And then we try to add to grace because grace is insufficient for my salvation. There's something, some transaction, some cost that I have to pay in order to receive what we sing Amazing Grace has purchased for me. The legalist cheapens grace and it leaves the legalist outside of mercy. The fact is there's, there's, no, perf- there's no performing our way into the kingdom. Ananias is a legalist, but he's also a hypocrite. 
You can be a legalist. And you can just stand up and say, yep, that's what I'm doing. And I'll tell you the ways that I'm doing it well, and I'll tell you the ways that I'm not doing it well. Yep. Tell you the things I need to work on so I can earn even more. But that's not the way we are. We're legalists and we're hypocrites. These two often go hand in hand. Because a legalist believes he can perform his way into the kingdom. In his pride, he begins to believe he can pretend his way into the kingdom. And that's important because here's what the legalist finds out. He finds out that he can't even live up to the measure of the law of his own creation. And he finds that he can't perform, so all he can do is pretend. This ha- it happens more often than not, not necessarily just in the, in, the, in the individual heart, though that covetousness is there. It happens culturally. A group of people start gathering as a church, and they began to, even unbeknownst to themselves, establish little rules and little traditions and little cultural realities that are ours. And we measure ourselves against them. And then when they begin to become so high and we fall under them, we begin to pretend around each other. So we're not only legalists, we're hypocrites. And we did it all to ourselves. All when grace was held out for us. For those who attempt legalistic performance, hypocrisy is always waiting at the door. We find quickly we can't measure up, but we can't back down because we're the one that made the law and now we're the ones who have to keep it. Here's what that means. When we come to the time of prayer of confession or when we come to communion and we come as a people who are repentant with nothing to offer, that means that we have to, we have to confess two things. And so very often we only confess the second. You see, we're pretty good at saying, God, I haven't measured up to the standard. But we fail to say, you know what? I think I've established standards of pretense and self-righteousness that I try to measure up to and put on display among the people of God. And so what I really need to do, God, is I need to not only confess my sin, I need to confess my self-righteousness. I need you to change the whole of the orientation in my heart. Show me what grace actually looks like functionally in the heart of a person who has trusted in you. We pretend and hide and posture ourselves. We hope that our legalistic failure won't be found out. Some of us, and some of you know exactly what I mean when I would say this, some of us change churches so we won't be found out. I'll tell you, there's few things that are more heartbreaking for a pastor than to know where a person is struggling and to do our best and to gather a community to do our best to to preach grace and live repentant lives that invite confession and yet see a person run off so they can't be found out. Don't let that be you. Let's gather together as a people who know our heart's disposition to legalism and hypocrisy. Let us be a people who gather weekly and daily, even in each other's lives, to confess our need for glorious, sufficient grace. There's a third thing that's very practical, because at this point, we could say, yeah, I'm just going to have to really work on that, generally speaking, whatever it is. But this passage isn't generally speaking about whatever it is. It's about the love of money. 
It's in there. It's about generosity with worldly things. Ananias and Sapphira believed that money, the money that they had, that was theirs, and it was theirs from the sale of property, and a portion that they kept back from themselves, they would try to purchase good standing in the church with a portion, and still keep a a portion for their own comfort and control. They believed that that property was of greater hope and reward than the fellowship of the believers and the mission of the church. This is especially brought out by the way that Luke tells that story up next to Barnabas. Barnabas was a son of encouragement. And when he gave, he gave out of a heart that had been encouraged by grace and overflowed into encouragement in the church because he'd found something more glorious, you see. But Ananias and Sapphira had not. Grace was not glorious to them. You see, a person transformed by grace is a lover of generosity every single time. Grace becomes, in the eyes of the redeemed, of such profound value that he becomes a lover of grace. He becomes a lover of prodigal generosity. That way of Jesus becomes not only salvation to the heart of the redeemed, it becomes joy becomes compelling, becomes beautiful to the heart of redeemed. You see, for the redeemed, there is salvation and there is transformation because of what we have seen. The person transformed by grace becomes a lover of the way of grace and mercy. There's a a fourth thing. Not only is Ananias a legalist, he's a hypocrite, he's a lover of money, he's also a functional atheist. I think it's one of the most compelling points of the passage. It doesn't say that Peter came over and struck him down. And Peter goes out of his way to say, you didn't lie to me. In fact, I think Peter could add the phrase, I don't have the right to strike you down. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You see, the church doesn't have the, the ability to coerce a member unto generosity. But the Lord will not be lied to. It's the most profound and disastrous reality of the passage. Ananias believes that all his legalism, all his hypocrisy, all his covetousness is just a matter between himself and the apostles and the rest of the church. It's just us doing our thing together. And Ananias and Sapphira are kind of doing their legalistic, hypocritical lover of money thing. But he functionally denied the reality of the Holy Spirit's authority. And he did so to his own demise. Lying to Peter, lying to the apostles, maybe that's no big thing. I mean, they're just people, right? Leaders of the church, yeah, but they're just people. But he gave no thought to the reality that the Lord was present among his church. You see, our legalism, our hypocrisy, our worldliness reveal the center of our hope, what what we believe to be our religious affection. Where is our hope, our emotional connection? They reveal our heart's trust. And often, our legalism and our hypocrisy, what they reveal is our heart's trust is in the things of this world. They reveal that we have a fear of losing comfort in the world and standing before the people around us. 
So the legalistic hypocrite spends his day testing his heart against his own thoughts about himself. You hear that? When you're testing your ego, what do you test it against? Don't you test it against what you think of yourself and then against what other people around you think of yourself? That's functional atheism. What does the Lord see when he looks into your heart? And you can say lots of things. You see someone who is filled with shame, who is condemned before his glory, who falls short of his standard of righteousness. And let us not forget that he sees one who is in need of a crucified Christ. What does he give? That's why it's grace. He sees who we are, and we don't measure up, and he sees what he needs, and then he provides it. Ananias and Sapphira thought to provide it for themselves, a standing in the church and still worldly wealth. And they got nothing but death. But the Lord sees our hearts and provides what we need if we would only trust in him. Friends, may we not be functional atheists in the way that we go about our Christian religion. It's what some along the way have called the Jesus and theology. The basic idea is Jesus plus nothing is everything versus Jesus plus anything is nothing. Ananias and Sapphira's way of thinking is Jesus and religion. Let me give you an example. Imagine that Tim Cook, he's a CEO of Apple, he offered to exchange his bank account for yours. Sit in that for a moment. All right? Tim Cook offers to exchange your bank account for his. And you think to yourself, really got him this time. (laughs) Yep. What Tim doesn't know is that yesterday, before he made this offer, okay, and kind of drew up the the plans of the contract, you went to the ATM and took out 40 bucks cold cash. Yeah. And the terms of the contract are he'll trade what's in your bank account for all of what's in his bank account. So technically, we're exchanging accounts and not wallets. So I can have $625 million and my $40 cold cash. Fool, right? Foolishness. You have the opportunity of a lifetime and you pervert it with legalistic $40 cold cash language. You look, you could look Tim Cook in the face on the day of that generous transaction. You could say, thank you, sir. I would gladly entrust to you all that I have in order to have all that is yours. But instead you say, I want all your stuff and I want to keep the small little pittance that I have carved out in this world. Friends, this is exactly what we say to the Lord. The Lord has given us what is not ours, and it is an abundant, infinite, eternal provision. And yet we say, that's awesome. 
I'll take it and the world. In a band of a gentleman who traveled with me three years ago to Mongolia, the band's name is Monday Movement. He writes this lyric, The love that you give is worth more than anything I could do. And yet we come doing as though we could earn it. But the love has already been given, church. What if our response to the reality of grace was simply, thank you, Jesus. I would gladly entrust to you all that I have in order to gain all that you are and all that you promised. Friends, that is the prayer of faith. I want to close with this challenge. See, the gospel of Jesus radically reorients our understanding of the world. And we see that the world is nothing compared to knowing Christ. We no longer have to fit and strive to obtain and hoard the things of this world. Jesus has revealed that hope and a promise supersede simple comfort and prosperity in this world. You and I were sinners from birth, covetous people. What we need is not a spot of cash. And what we need is far more than religious posturing. What we need is forgiveness. And the Lord alone is holy. The Lord alone is righteousness. And the Lord has leveraged His righteousness in the person and work of Jesus for sinners who have nothing in and of ourselves to offer. Sinners without legalistic posturing, without hypocritical pretending, and yet He has given His life on a cross that we would have life in Him. The result is that for all who trust in Him are both forgiven of sin and receive life and all of the benefits that are in Christ. That means that the crucifixion of Jesus is the crucifixion of our sin and our hold on this world. Do you believe it? Do you functionally believe it? Do you meditate on it in such a way that it plays itself out in your life. For those who are united to the death and resurrection of Jesus by faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus reveals that you can reject me. Do you believe it? For some of you, you'd rather have death than rejection. You can reject me. You can cause me to suffer. You can kill me. You can strip me bare and mock me. But my life is hidden in Christ. It's secure there. And so I can walk in generosity over and over again and lose nothing. And so I call you to trust in that reality alone. And I also call you to hold on to the things of this world loosely. That we would treasure what God has given to us. He's given us a fellowship. You can look around and see it. You can walk in it during the course of our week together as a church. He's given us a fellowship and He's given us a mission. Let's leverage our lives to that end. Lord God, I, am, I cannot create this in myself or any of the people gathered this morning, and it is not my job to coerce it. It's not my right. But Lord, You can work it. You can work it in my heart and in all of those who are gathered that we can freely confess that we are weak, we are prone toward legalism, hypocrisy, love of money, 
even functional atheism. We are prone to these things, but by your grace, you have saved us from the punishment of our sin that you died for us, that we might not drop dead in our sin. And you are working transformation that need not be so of us any longer. And I pray that you would work that even this morning, that as we come to communion, we would become increasingly a people of gratitude. And that in the offering, whether we bring an offering this morning or we've participated online or you have simply done a work in our heart of generosity and other means, Lord, I pray that that generosity would be truly and only worship before you. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would prosper your people in your grace, that you would lavish us in all wisdom and insight with your grace. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. This is who we are, and this is what we have to trust in you. Amen.